Our Bible study tonight is going to take us to Genesis 49 as a beginning point. Our starting point is going to be looking at prophecy in Genesis 49 and in Deuteronomy 33, so you'll need to open up your Bibles to those two passages. We're going to start in Genesis 49, so open up your Bibles there and let's get ready to read a little bit out of that chapter. Our title tonight is The Two Covenant Israelite Nations. As a beginning point, we need to understand that God, in His providence, had a great prophecy given. Out of ancient Israel was prophesied that there would come a nation and a company of nations. And out of the many companies of nations, out of the multitudinous nations that were going to come out of Israel in the future, there is one that is worth mentioning that we need to focus on this evening. It is a remarkable nation. It was prophesied first by Jacob in his failing hours, in his failing hours as life ebbed away, he gave this great prophecy in Genesis chapter 49. And it is a prophecy about Joseph, the great tribe of Joseph and the great man Joseph and out of the loins of Joseph was going to come a great nation. And there is much to be said in scripture about this nation. So we're going to look at one of the foundational passages that deal with this nation in prophecy. And it's going to begin in chapter number 49, verse number 22. Now I hope you've turned there because I'm going to ask all of you to stand for a moment and read with me. We're going to read slowly and carefully these verses. These verses describe a nation to come many centuries hence from when this was written. That nation is before us now. And that nation, I believe, is the United States of America. Now you read these words, and I want you to think about what these words might mean and how they were fulfilled in time and in prophecy Here we go, Genesis 49, beginning at 22, and we'll stop at 26. Joseph is a fruitful bough, even a fruitful bough by a well, whose branches run over the wall. The archers have sorely grieved him, and shot at him, and hated him. But his bow abode in strength, and the arms of his hands were made strong by the hands of the mighty God of Jacob." From thence is the shepherd, the stone of Israel, even by the God of thy father, who shall help thee, and by the Almighty, who shall bless thee with blessings of heaven above, blessings of the deep that lieth under, blessings of the breasts and of the womb. The blessings of thy father have prevailed above the blessings of my progenitors unto the utmost bound of the everlasting hills. They shall be on the head of Joseph and on the crown of him that was separate from his brethren. Thank you. And if you'll, before you be seated, if you can manage this, turn to Deuteronomy 33. We have a parallel passage. These are among the last words of the great prophet Moses. Moses has words in Deuteronomy 33 that are very much a parallel to what we just read in Genesis. Now these are speaking of the same nation in prophecy. And if you analyze the words, if you take the poetic and the uh, 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 wonderful imagery that we just read in Genesis, and you set it next to the, the imagery and the, 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 the lyrical words that we're going to read in Deuteronomy 33, you're going to see that they run exactly down the same track. This is also of Joseph, beginning at verse 13 through 17. Let us read together. And of Joseph he said, Blessed of the Lord be his land, for the precious things of heaven, for the dew, for the deep that coucheth beneath, and for the precious fruits brought forth by the sun, and for the precious things put forth by the moon, and for the chief things of the ancient mountains, and for the precious things of the lasting hills, and for the precious things of the earth, and the fullness thereof, for the good will of him that dwelt in the bush. Let the blessing come upon the head of Joseph, and upon the top of the head of him that was separated from his brethren. 
His glory is like the firstling of the bullock, and his horns are like the horns of unicorns. With them he shall push the people together to the ends of the earth. They are the ten thousands of Ephraim, and they are the thousands of Manasseh. Thank you so much. You may be seated. We can now identify this nation. This nation is America. And America is special. Barack Obama famously told us that America was not special. It was his native land, too, I guess. <laughs> but to him, it was not special. What a pity. What a... But America is special, and we're going to talk about the uniqueness of this land. It turns out that America is the second of only two nations in world history to originate through a covenant with Jehovah. Now, that's a remarkable statement, but I think that uh, Scripture and history can show this to be true. America is only the second of two nations in all of world history to originate through a covenant with Jehovah. Now, that's a strong statement, and that sets it apart from many other nations, even wonderful Israelite nations like France and Norway and Germany and others that we might like to speak of. But if you'll listen to me this evening, I think I've got the evidence to show that what I've just told you is true. Now, we're going to be looking at a parallel tonight. There is a great parallel in history that is worth considering, and I'm going to try to describe that for you tonight. Now, when you look at history, and I love history, some of you like history. For those who find history dull, I'll try to capture your attention. <laughs> if you look for patterns in history, they are hard to discern. They're present, I believe, but they're hard to discern because as the various patterns and parallels unfold, they have many permutations, and the permutations make every situation a little different. Nonetheless, tonight we're going to look at what I believe is a valid and true pattern of history between two nations, one an ancient nation and one a modern nation. And these two nations are the only two nations, I believe it can be argued accurately, that both had an origin in a covenant with Jehovah, a specific covenant with Jehovah. These two nations are the ancient nation of Israel and the nation we call the United States of America. We'll just call it America. Are you ready? Now you're going to need that paper here, here in a few moments. Both ancient Israel and America had precise founding covenants at a particular time. They had very precise founding covenants at a particular moment in time for each of them. Now, ancient Israel entered into a covenant with God at Mount Sinai. Now, this is described for us, and we can read about it in Exodus chapter 19, and I'd like to call that to your attention now. So I'm going to open up to Exodus 19, and I'm going to begin reading. I'll pick it up, and I'm going to read the key verses that deal with the covenant that ancient Israel made with Moses, excuse me, made with God under the leadership of Moses at Mount Sinai in approximately 1491 B.C., depending on which chronologist you choose to go with. Reading from Exodus 19, beginning at verse, I'll break in at verse number 5. Here are the key words of this covenant. Now therefore, if ye will obey my voice indeed, and keep my covenant then ye shall be a peculiar treasure unto me above all people, for all the earth is mine. These are the words of God. Verse 6. And ye shall be unto me a nation of, a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words which thou shalt speak unto the children of Israel. Now let's see what the people say. Verse 7. Moses came and called for the elders of the people and laid before their faces all these words which the Lord commanded him. Verse 8, And all the people answered together and said, All that the Lord hath spoken, we will do. Amen. 
and Moses returned the words of the people unto the Lord. So we see that here is the specific covenant at a precise moment in time, at a precise location in which the children of Israel became a nation. They were a ethnic group, they were a genetic collection, they were an extended family, and now they became a nation. Now we know what happened. We know that Moses led them through the years in the wilderness. We know that they entered the land of Canaan. We know that they conquered much of the land of Canaan. And we know that they had many unfolding adventures trying to establish themselves in that land and maintain a happy and prosperous existence. Now we'll come back to that here in a little bit to see how that went. Meanwhile, so while we have looked now at the formation of ancient Israel in a specific covenant that brought them forth as a nation in covenant relationship with Jehovah, we're going to take some time now and jump forward some 3,500 years or whatever it turns out to be. And we're going to look at America. Now, when I have made the statement that America began as a covenant nation with Jehovah, I think that I've got the evidence to show that this is true. Now, I'd like to give you that evidence and present it for you tonight, or at least a portion of it, to show you that the, the unique origin of America. I believe that America entered a covenant with God in Massachusetts. 1620, 1630. Now, in 1620, we have the pilgrims. In 1630, we have the real covenant. We have the Puritans. We have the forerunners. We have the early morning star, the pilgrims in 1620 in Plymouth. And in Massachusetts Bay in 1630, we have the arrival of a much larger group, the Puritans. Now, many of us know the story of the pilgrims, so I won't go through all of that. You know that they arrived in November of 1620. And many of you have heard of the Mayflower Compact. It's a short statement. It is a covenantal statement. It is a statement in which they enter into a, a covenant with their God and with each other to live in this new land that they had been brought to and to live their lives in covenant with Jehovah. Now, from the Mayflower Compact, I've given you a short statement on your worksheet there. So pull out your pencil Find your pen, get your pencil and your pen, and then I know the font is a little small, but I had to kind of shrink it down to get everything onto the sheet. Get, put your reading glasses on if you need them. Pull out your pencil. You'll be blessed if you do this. Let's look at the Mayflower Compact. I'm going to read it, and you fill in the blanks. Are you ready to go? Here we go. Having undertaken for the glory of God an advancement of the Christian faith, plant the first colony in the northern parts of Virginia, do by these present solemnly, solemnly and mutually in the presence of God and one another covenant and combine ourselves together in a civil body politic. Amen. Now that has a little bit of biblical language, wouldn't you agree? A little bit there. Sure does. And that's because they were Christian. Now, you say, okay, well, they made some sort of a covenant. What's that have to do with me? Well, let me just point something out to you. There is, many people have tried to research the genealogy of the people who came over on the Mayflower. The original 100 souls that came over on the Mayflower. Actually, I think it was 102. But it turns out and this is a rather amazing statistic. It depends who you ask, but at a minimum, they have concluded that there are 10 million Americans that have an ancestor who came over on the Mayflower. Can you believe that? 10 million Americans today who have an ancestor that came over on the Mayflower. There's probably a few people here that have an ancestor who came on the Mayflower. Now let's go to the real covenant. If that covenant was the precursor, let's go now 
to the Puritans. And let's jump forward 10 years. It turns out that just north of Plymouth, on the coast of Cape Cod, only about 15 or 20 miles away, lies Massachusetts Bay. And there, the Puritans landed in 1630. Now, I need to tell you a little bit about the Puritans. The Puritans were a group of people that came from England. They wanted to purify the Church of England. They were not having success in doing that. So, they decided to make a long story much shorter. (laughs) They decided to try their luck and come to North America, which was a wilderness at the time. And they organized themselves into companies. They organized themselves and got their resources. They bought their supplies. They organized their families. They bought the the ships, and they, they, they made all the arrangements. And in the year 1630, 11 ships set sail. They passed across the Atlantic Ocean, landed in Massachusetts Bay. In the following 10 years, 30,000 Puritans between 1630 and 1640 landed in Massachusetts and rapidly spread out to Connecticut, a little bit into Rhode Island, and a little bit up into New Hampshire. 30,000 in 10 years. This is known in history as the Great Migration. Now, returning to the year 1630 and that first fleet of 11 ships, there are two key personalities I'd like to introduce you to. One was a man who did not come in the first wave. He came a little later, several years later. This man was John Cotton. John Cotton, however, was in Southampton, England, when that fleet of 11 ships left. And he preached a sermon to them. And in this sermon... He selected as his text 2 Samuel 7.10. Now, if you're not familiar with 2 Samuel 7.10, it's an interesting passage. It's a promise and a prophecy given by the prophet Nathan from the mouth of God to David when David was getting ready and had the ambition to build a temple. And this is what God said to David about the people of Israel. He said, Moreover, I will appoint a place for my people Israel. I will plant them that they may dwell in a place of their own and move no more. Neither shall the children of wickedness afflict them any more as before time. Now, the original context of that statement indicated that God was going to bless David and give Israel peace in the land where they lived. In time, things didn't go as well as one might have hoped. But this prophecy has been fulfilled in at least one other place, perhaps several other places. This is a prophecy that seems to have, dare I say, multiple fulfillments. So it seems. John Cotton selected this passage And the name of that sermon that he gave in Southampton in the year 1630 as the fleet of 11 ships pulled out of harbor was called God's promise to his plantation. It was a new nation and a new covenant and new place and a new home that God was sending his people and John Cotton was there to see him off. Now on those ships was a remarkable man. His name was John Winthrop. He became the governor of this colony for many years upon landing in Massachusetts. As the fleet made their way across the Atlantic, one of the most famous and noteworthy sermons was given in all of English history. It simply is called, usually, it is simply called, A City Set on a Hill. Now, John Winthrop preached this sermon on the flagship of this fleet as they were sailing across, preparing for them to land on the shores. The name of the ship, by the way, was Arbella. Interestingly, that was not the original name of the ship. The original name of the ship was the Eagle. It was renamed Arbella for a lady named Lady Arbella Johnson, 
whose name, whose husband's name was, interestingly, Isaac. <laughs> In that sermon, John Winthrop laid out a special and unique covenant. And I'd like you to read what we have on your worksheet before you. And I'm asking you again, pull out your pen and your pencil. Pull out your marker. And I'm going to read from a city set on a hill. And I want you to fill in the blanks. I know it's a little tight, but let's read it together. Are you ready? John Winthrop, from this great sermon that he preached, that established and formulated the covenant concept that the Puritans entered America in. Here we go. The end, that, it, that means the goal, the end, the goal. The end is to improve our lives, to do more service to the Lord. The comfort and increase of the body of Christ, whereof we are members. To serve the Lord and to work out our salvation under the power and purity of His holy ordinances. We are entered into covenant with Him for this work. We have taken out a commission. He hath ratified this covenant and sealed our commission. We shall find that the God of Israel is among us, when ten, th ten of us shall be able to resist a thousand of our enemies. We shall be as a city set upon a hill. The eyes of all the people are upon us. If we shall neglect the observation of these articles and dissembling with our God, shall fall and embrace this present world and prosecute our carnal intentions, the Lord shall surely break out in wrath against us and make us know the price of the breach of such a covenant. If we shall deal falsely with our God in this work we have undertaken, we shall be made a story and a byword throughout the world till we be consumed out of the good land whither we are going. Now, ladies and gentlemen, that language is the language of the Bible. If you don't recognize it, you don't know your Bible. Now, this covenant that the Puritans entered into willingly and openly had great fulfillment. And for several generations... We know that the Puritans did rather well for themselves. Subsequent generations, not so much. Now you might be thinking, well, you know, those old Puritans, that doesn't have much to do with me. Well, let me explain something to you. In case you're not so sure that it has nothing to do with you, it may. Because it turns out that the 30,000 Puritans who entered into this covenant willingly and knowingly part of the great migration, from those 30,000 Puritans are an estimated, at least, this is a, believe it or not, this is a conservative figure. There are 100 million Americans today who have a direct ancestor who came from the Puritan great migration. 100 million. I myself have one that I know of. You say, I thought you were from Sweden. Well, that's on my father's side. Turns out my mother's mother was a miller who came from an Evans, who came from, I forgot who he was. Now I'd have to look it back up. But he came in the year 1638 as part of that Puritan migration and lit upon what became Connecticut, just down the road from Massachusetts, at least according to the map. <laughs> now, this covenant that the United States, I, I guess we could really say, this covenant that America entered into is profound. There is no other nation that has an origin exactly like this one, or even really close like this one. Now, as we think about that, and we want to continue this parallel in our discussion this evening, contrasting and comparing ancient Israel that entered into a covenant with God and America that originated in covenant with God. Let's go a little further into this comparison. We can say this, and we'll continue on, uh, on our outline down there. It turns out that both of these nations, ancient Israel and America, both 
entered their respective lands. Both had a period of loose confederation in which the governmental structures were rather loose and they were able to do what they wish. And then they entered into an area of unified government and a time of unified government. In the case of ancient Israel, we had the 12 tribes who entered the land, 13 if you will, considering the, counting the Levites, or, or how, however you'd like to count them up, dividing uh, the tribe of, of Ephraim and Manasseh from Joseph. But we have the tribes entered the land of Canaan. We know that for several hundred years they had this rather loose confederation under the judges, which they had a bit of a wild time. If you read the book of Judges, there's a lot of wild things that happen, believe me, especially toward the end. (laughs) So they had this rather loose confederation of 12 tribes, more or less self-governing under God. In the case of America, we ended up with 13 colonies. The 13 colonies, most people think, well, they were directly under the, the thumb of the King of England. Well, in theory, that's true. In practice, in practice, in reality, if you look, look at this, this is quite true what I'm going to tell you. They were more or less self-governing. And that's why, that's why at the end of what was known as the French and Indian War, when the King of England decided to try to uh, obtain a few taxes out of them, they got so upset. It's because they had been basically self-governing for the most part, largely ignored by England, while England was going through their own civil war in the 1600s and all kinds of troubles and adventures back in the homeland, these colonies were just kind of bumping along on their own. So both ancient Israel and America had a period of 150, maybe two, uh, 200 years in the case of Israel. They had a period where they were largely sort of loosely confederated, self-governing institutions, tribes, and, and colonies. And then they both entered in to a desire for unified government. Now, in the case of ancient Israel, we know how that went. Israel established a monarchy. They established a monarchy as its central government. It was about the year 1095. King Saul was the first king. David and Solomon and others came later. Meanwhile, America, when they entered in time of unified government, we established a republic. And that, of course, was in 1776. We, re, we refined that a bit with the Constitution ratified and put into action in 1787 and 1789. Now, following this, and we're going to kind of move quickly, the next phase of history takes us with both of them in what you can call a heroic age. Both ancient Israel and America passed through what we can call a heroic age. Now, in the case of ancient Israel, this heroic age is the time in which Israel overcame its primary obstacles under David and Solomon. Now, the primary obstacles were their perennial enemies. Under David, the Philistines were finally crushed. And you never hear about the Philistines again. All of the various enemies were put down. They were crushed And as the crowning glory of this heroic age with these great heroes that came out of David's reign, we have God's great temple was built. Now, America had a heroic age as well. And I believe it's it's right and proper. If you want to just take a little pride in your ancestors' accomplishments, this would probably be the right moment in time to do it. This epoch. America overcame its primary obstacle, which was wilderness. Wilderness. Now, it was quite a wilderness. And this happened much more rapidly than many people realize. From the time of the closing of the American Revolution in 1783, if you can imagine in your mind, I don't know how many of you are good at geography, but if you are, imagine in your mind a great map of the United States. And if you can imagine in your mind, over on the eastern seaboard, we have our 13 colonies who became 13 states. Then right adjacent to them is this barrier, a great barrier for them. It's called the Appalachian Mountain Range. Now, if you've ever driven through the Appalachians, you know it's a pretty rough, tangled mess. Think about going through that thing on a wagon or horseback. It was a rough, tangled mess. 
from the so there's the barrier and 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 you see it, in seven when the when the American War of Independence ended there were virtually there were only a tiny handful of Americans who lived on the far side of the Appalachians so in your mind's eye we've got the Atlantic Ocean, the eastern seaboard here, and we have the Appalachian Mountains. Then we have this great vast continent that stretches about 3,000 miles. We've got rivers, and we've got prairies, and we've got mountains, and we've got deserts, and we finally get over to the Pacific Ocean, and we come to California and the Golden Gate. Now, how long did it take, ladies and gentlemen, to go from here 3,000 miles to here. Less time than you think. The lifetime of one man. It was only about 75 years. From the closing of the American War of Independence until California becomes a state in 1850 was 75 years. Your ancestors conquered a continent in one lifetime. Now, ladies and gentlemen, that's a remarkable accomplishment in world history. I've done a lot of reading, and there's a lot of remarkable things that have happened in history. And that is among the most remarkable. And you should be, you should, you should look upon your ancestors with just a little bit of admiration. Because they did some mighty, mighty deeds in those 70 years. So America overcame its primary obstacle, the wilderness. From Cape Cod to the Golden Gate... A continent was conquered in fulfillment of prophecy. The verses we just read in Genesis and Deuteronomy. Read them again if you don't, didn't have time to absorb it all. Now if we go forward a little bit more in history, and we continue with our comparison, we see that there's something else that happened in the history of both of these nations, ancient Israel and America. Both ancient Israel and America attempted secession. They came to blows one with the other. Now, if you know your Bible history, you know in the time of King Rehoboam, that God raised up out of his providence a man named Jeroboam, and internal tension caused Israel to divide. Ten tribes seceded. And if you know your American history, which I believe most of you do, you know that internal tension caused America to divide. But this secession failed. Southern secession did not succeed. You might say, well, that makes a big difference. Well, not as big as you think. And here's why. Even though, even though the ancient Israelites had a secession, a successful secession with two separate political units two different political histories. But they never could untether themselves one from the other. And if you read Scripture, you're going to discover that there's all kinds of bonds that kept them joined at the hip the whole time. Prophets would prophesy to one and to the other. Kings would marry here and marry there. There was all kinds of interaction between these. Once in a while, they'd have a squabble and a war. Next thing you know, they'd have an alliance going and they were kissing cousins. They were joined at the hip throughout the history of the Old Testament. They never really could untether themselves one from the other. So in a sense, they were two political units. In a sense, they were really the same one big society. They were Israelites. They were, a, they were brothers. They were part of the same cultural unit. And the, both of them had very similar problems and similar successes. Well, once the secession period closes, both ancient Israel and America then entered a sustained age of prosperity and decadence. Prosperity and decadence. Now, if we talk about ancient Israel for a moment, it turns out that in those about, about a period of about 200 years, we'll just ballpark it. Both the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom, the kingdom of Israel and the kingdom of Judah, both kingdoms, we can now say, enjoyed unprecedented prosperity. Unprecedented. 
It was the wealthiest time for both of them. And you say, well, how do you know that? I thought the wealthiest time was under Solomon. Well, maybe, maybe Solomon. The reason we know this is because there's been an extensive archaeological work done in the Holy Land. And that is the period of time in which the homes were the biggest, in which the barns were the biggest, the towns were the biggest. Everything was bigger and larger and more prosperous. Archaeology has told us this. And a close reading of Scripture indicates this as well. Now, they had their problems, but this was a time of, of unprecedented growth and prosperity. But it was also a time of great decadence, a time of apostasy. This was a company, this was also a period in which they were accompanied by the steady growth of Baal and Moloch. Those were the two most popular false deities that Israel got involved in. And most of us have heard plenty about the worship of Baal, or, or Baal, as some would pronounce it. So, it was a, a real sad time as well. Even though they were in many ways prosperous, particularly in the middle portion of that, up until the end, things were going pretty well for many of them in terms of the ec economics, in terms of the land, and, and things of this nature, and the, and the growth, and the farms, and the trade, and the and the business, but they were in a time of great apostasy as well. Now, meanwhile, if we go to America, following our, now you probably can see this, if you know just a little bit about American history, you'll know what I'm going to tell you is true. Following our war of secession, we also entered in to a time of great prosperity. America, in the following a hundred years became the most wealthy nation ever known. So since our war of secession, which is 160 years ago or so, we have become the most wealthy nation ever known in the history of the world. Meanwhile, like ancient Israel, we have slowly descended into atheism and debauchery. The parallel is exactly the same. It's a pity. It is a doggone pity that when God blesses people, they forget Him. It is one of the great ironies of human nature that prosperity causes people who might otherwise have been godly people to turn away from their Creator. And I don't know if I can explain it, but it is a truism that happens again and again. And it happens to nations as well. And we can see it as we compare ancient Israel to America. Well, let's go a little further. One of these two nations, these two covenant nations, one experienced the death of its covenant with God. The other... Well, we're, we have yet to find out. Let's talk about that for a moment. God eventually decreed covenantal divorce for ancient Israel. But it was Israel that broke the covenant, not God. God might have said, okay, here's the divorce. But Israel is the one that broke the covenant. Israel is the one that caused the problem. Israel is the one that ruined this relationship. Israel is the one that did not fulfill its obligations in the relationship over and over and over again. And finally, God said, I give up. I give up if that's what you want. You don't want me. Fine, I'll cut you loose. Now, the death of the covenant in ancient Israel, was a case of neglect. It was a case of neglect. Now, I've tried to think hard to try to find the right analogy, to try to find just the right analogy to, 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 to explain how this neglect unfolded. Because it's a, it's a little bit hard to, to discern in Scripture or, and, and, and in time exactly when that covenant was finally dead. I finally came up with this, and I don't know if it's a good idea, but imagine I've got a plant here. It's like a plant. 
It's like a plant that has been cut off from the light and the water that it needs. It's just not getting enough. Maybe it's too dry. Maybe it's too shady. Maybe you're not keeping it in a window like you need to, but whatever. It's not getting the light and it's not getting the water that it needs. And you're scratching your head and you say, well, that plant looks a little bit sick. Well, maybe it'll revive. How many of you have had a plant like that? Yeah, yeah, it's a little sour. It's a little sick. It's starting to look a little pale. Maybe it'll revive. And so you give it a little extra water, a little attention. You're not really sure what's happening, but somehow it's not getting what it needs. And then as you kind of check in once in a while, maybe it's a shrub in front of your house and you give it a little bit of attention and you're kind of hoping it'll recover. Finally, one day you walk outside and you look at that plant that you were hoping would recover and you've given a little attention to it, but you look out and you say, well, you know, I think it's dead. <laughs> when did that happen? Was that this morning? Was it last week? Was it last month? You're not sure. I don't know if you can tell. I can't. Maybe there's people with a green thumb who can identify the moment of death, but typically not. All you know is that the, the, the plant was ailing, and then one day you, you have decided it's dead. But when did it die? It's difficult to say, but it's clearly dead. <laughs> In much the same way, I believe the death of the covenant of ancient Israel was a case of neglect. Just like a plant that starved for water and light. It's impossible to pinpoint the moment of death. But one day, undeniably, the plant is dead. Now, in the case of ancient Israel, by the days and the time of Jeremiah, Israel's covenant with God was over. And Jeremiah was the prophet assigned by God to preside over the final death of ancient Israel. Now that's ancient Israel. And we're going to come back to Jeremiah here in a moment. The question could be asked, or maybe a series of questions could be asked now about America. Is America's covenant with God dead? Has the old America perished? If so, when did it die? Or is there a faithful remnant struggling to keep it alive? I can't answer those questions. I don't know if anybody can. Probably many of us may have an opinion. But it's a little hard to tell. Maybe it's very hard to tell, perhaps. If America was a shrub, it's yellow. <laughs> the leaves are getting brittle. It doesn't look very good. <laughs> Maybe there's a few green shoots down underneath if you look a little bit. It's a little hard to say. Now, in terms of final judgment, let's consider ancient Israel. Because as we look at the parallel and we look at these stages, we've, got, we've had five clear stages that we can draw a parallel. Both ancient Israel and America had precise founding covenants at a particular time. Both entered, had a period of loose confederation and they entered at a specific point in time a clear unified government. Both of them passed through a great heroic age of which both can be very proud of their ancestors and their accomplishments. Both attempted secession, internal dissension, couldn't get along with each other. Both entered a sustained period of prosperity and then decadence. One experienced the death of its covenant. That one, ancient Israel, also experienced final judgment. Final judgment finally came. America has not experienced final judgment. Now let's talk briefly about the final judgment that ancient Israel suffered. Because history is sometimes complicated, usually we try to simplify it some. And usually as historians, they'll try to simplify it by saying, well, 
this, this circumstance happened in one year. Maybe you've heard of, like, say, the fall of the Roman Empire. Maybe as a child you were a youth, or maybe if you're in my class you were persuaded and compelled to memorize a date. The Roman Empire fell in 476. Well, that's really an oversimplification of reality. And I try to explain that to my students. But it's harder to, to understand all these complicated things. Well, it turns out, in the case of ancient Israel, their final judgment came in stages. Ancient Israel suffered a series of political dismantlings that spanned more than a century. Now, if you would like to learn a little Bible history, usually they'll say, well, the northern kingdom died and came to an end in 721 B.C. Maybe you've heard that date. And the southern kingdom came to an end in 586 B.C. That's great. Dates are good. They help us in our understanding. But yet they're an oversimplification. The reality is the northern kingdom of Israel came to a, a political end in 721 when its capital fell, but there had been enormous chunks taken away already before that time, beginning 30 years prior. Meanwhile, if you jump to the southern kingdom and you say, well, okay, so Jerusalem fell in 586 B.C., that's simple enough. Actually, it's not. It's not that simple because, like the north, giant chunks were ripped away of the southern kingdom. And in a series of political dismantlings, the final end came in 586. But all of it was a series of staged truncations, if you will. The nations, both north and south, were truncated. They were chopped up. This is gone, and this is gone, and this is gone, and this is gone. And finally, there's one little rump left, and finally the last little rump ends in that famous year for Bible students, 586 B.C. That's a description of, of reality on the ground for the Israelites who lived in those days. Now, there might be something there for us to reflect on. In stages, they were removed from the covenant land. In stages, they were removed from the covenant land. And the removal from the covenant land is proof positive that the covenant was dead. That is the evidence of the covenant being gone. When you are, for one reason or another, they're not in the land. Maybe they were carried away. Maybe they were murdered in their beds. But they're not there anymore. America's final judgment has not yet begun. In my opinion, what we have seen thus far in our time are mere trifles. Now, I say that when I say trifles, I don't mean to minimize the problems. I'm simply minimizing the pain. Most Americans, the pain we, have, we, have, we receive from the problems we see are relatively modest. And that is, that is based on a larger perspective. Most of us still live in very comfortable homes. We still drive around. We still move around. We have money to, extra money to spend. We can travel. We can do many, many things. We grumble and gripe about a lot of things, and they're good things to grumble and gripe about. But from a historic perspective, these are trifles. America's final judgment has not begun. Now, as we consider this thought about America's final judgment, I want to return you back on your worksheet, back to that first side again. I want to return you to the covenant that John Winthrop laid out as he led the people across the Atlantic Ocean in fulfillment of Bible prophecy. That's that going over that wall back in Genesis that was described. Let me call your attention to the words of the covenant, the words that we've already looked at. Look at the second portion of it. This is the sobering part. We'll break into where we see a city set on a hill. The eyes of the people are upon us. 
If we neglect the observation of these articles, dissembling with our God shall fall and embrace this present world and prosecute our carnal intentions, the Lord shall surely break out in wrath against us. Make us know the price of the breach of such a covenant. If we deal falsely with our God in this work we have undertaken, we shall be made a story and a byword throughout the world till we be consumed out of the good land whither we are going. Now you can be sure that if things do not change, if the trajectory doesn't change, we can count on those prophetic words coming true one way or another in time. So I'm asking you to recall the words of John Winthrop, which was something of an American Moses. Really, an American Moses he was. Now, as we close, we've got a little little bit to talk about. We need to talk a little bit about how you and I should react and what we should think and what we're supposed to do. Well, that's that's a big topic. It's a sobering topic. But I phrased it in this way. Where should the faithful remnant place our hope? Where should we look for for hope? Now, of course, we have to have hope. You can't live without hope. And I want to give hope to young people. I want to have hope for myself. I I might be silver-haired now, but I'm not dead yet. (laughs) I want hope. I want them to have hope. Well, the first thing we've got to remember is this. Hope is going to be contingent upon repentance. Hope is contingent upon repentance. No repentance, (laughs) no real hope. Hope is dependent, contingent upon repentance. We must be prepared to take some licks. We must be prepared to take some punishment, take some stripes. We're going to have to receive a few beatings. That's right, the the remnant as well. You and I are going to have to be prepared to take our licks and take some beatings along with everybody else. And if you think, well, I don't deserve it, well, in some respects you do, and I do, we all do, and that is just the way it works, ladies and gentlemen. And you need to be humble about it and say, okay, I'm ready to take what comes. Now, let me take you back to Jeremiah. If you really want to get a sense of a parallel between ancient Israel and America, and between those times and our times, reading Jeremiah is a great place. There's a lot in the book of Jeremiah, and um, if, you can, if, you, if you can get a sense of what was happening in his time, it'll really help you have a better sense of what we need to be thinking about in our time. Now, let me give you an illustration of this and, and uh, the sense of, of how we're going to have to be prepared to take some licks. Not long, in Jeremiah chapter 42, it describes a, an episode that, uh, that uh, occurred not long after the destruction of Jerusalem in 586 B.C., and most of the people of Judah were carried away into captivity. There were a few that remained. Not every single soul got dragged off to Babylon. Mostly it was the aristocrats, the businessmen, the powerful, the wealthy, the significant. The poor of the land, some of them were able to remain. And there they were, still out in their little bitty farm, scratching and eking out a living. So among those poor folk that were not carried to Babylon, they had a leader. They had this man mentioned in Jeremiah 42, verse 1, Johanan. And it turns out that at that moment in time, Johanan and some of his people turned to Jeremiah and asked for some advice. What shall we do, those of us that are left here? Well, let's read about it. Jeremiah 42, let me read in verse 1. Then all the captains of the forces, and Johanan the son of Korea, and Jezaniah the son of Hoshiah, and all the people from the least to the greatest came near. And they said to Jeremiah the prophet, Let we beseech thee, our supplication be accepted before thee. 
Pray for us unto the Lord thy God, even for all this remnant. Here we are, we're a remnant. Pray for us, Jeremiah. We are left but a few of many, as thine eyes do behold us. There's only a handful of us left. Most of everybody got carried away. But there's a few of us here. What are we supposed to do? That the Lord thy God may show us the way wherein we may walk in the thing that we may do. Jeremiah, tell us what to do. Ask God to give us instructions. What are we supposed to do? Where do we go? All right, so the answer comes back in verse 9. Let's drop down to verse 9. Now read this carefully with me. Jeremiah 42, 9. And Jeremiah said unto them, Thus saith the Lord, the God of Israel, unto whom ye sent me to present your supplication before him. He said, If ye will still abide in this land, then I will build you and not pull you down. I will plant you and not pluck you up, for I repent me of the evil I've done unto you. Be not afraid of the king of Babylon, of whom you are afraid. Be not afraid of him, saith the Lord, for I am with you to save you and deliver you for his hand. Now, if you keep on reading, you'll see the word Egypt down in verse 14, and the word Egypt in 16, and the word Egypt in 17. The place Egypt keeps popping up. Well, what God was telling him was, stay put, go back to your farm, pick up the plow, pick up the harness, go back to what you're doing, keep your head down low, and just keep at it. Be quiet and remember your God in heaven. Don't go to Egypt. Don't go to Egypt. Well, what did the people do? Well, if you turn to, turn, turns out, if you keep on reading, you know what they did? They went to Egypt. <laughs> and very unfortunate things unfolded from there. They didn't take his advice. They didn't humble themselves. They didn't want to take their licks. They said, we've had enough. We're out of here. Forget this covenant. We're gone. We don't want to stay in this place anymore. God brought us into this land. Well, there's nothing left in this land. We're off. They voluntarily went to Egypt. Now, what are we supposed to learn from that? Well, there's a lot of things probably that are embedded there. One of the things, though, I think we have to understand, and now I'm going to shift slightly from a biblical point of view to just a very practical point of view. There's something you have to understand, a reality. <clears throat> the judgment for us may be piecemeal. Final judgment actually very well may be piecemeal. Why might I say that? Because that's the way it unfolded for ancient Israel. It was piecemeal. It was one chunk after another chunk after another chunk after another chunk one truncation of the nation until it finally, there was nothing left except a tiny remnant in the land. Now, America, our nation is uniquely vast. It really is. It is unique among most nations in the world. It is vast. Different sections of this nation may be judged separately. Now, let that thought settle into your head because I think it is a real possibility that different sections of this nation may be judged separately. And our fate may be very much like ancient Israel, in which one chunk is overwhelmed from one type of a catastrophe, and another chunk is overwhelmed in another type of a catastrophe. So we don't know how it's going to occur. Now, finally, going back to Jeremiah again, there's one final thought I want to throw out for you. There's an interesting group of people in Jeremiah 35. Now, these are people I've mentioned before, and they repeatedly seem to capture my attention. I'd like to call your attention and ask you to turn with me in, in, as we close and learn a little bit about the Rechabites. The Rechabites are a really interesting bunch in, in the days of ancient Israel, in the time of Jeremiah. The Rechabites. They're in Jeremiah chapter number 35. Well, who were these people and what was going on? 
Well, I'm going to just tell you this. I think the Rechabites offer a model for you and I, a model of hope for ultra-conservatives like you and I. Now, why do I say ultra-conservatives? That, that, that's, a, that's a good thing to be, a conservative. An ultra-conservative is a good thing. It's not a bad thing. It's not simply a political thing. It's just a good way to live. Now, look at the Rechabites, and I think maybe I can show you what I mean. What was it that they were doing? And why did God favor the Rechabites? It's because they were, indeed, ultra-conservatives. Voluntarily. Now, let's look at their style of conservatism. We'll break into verse 8. It says, Thus have we obeyed the voice of Jonadab, the son of Rechab, our father, in all that he hath charged us. Now, here's what that fellow told him to do. Are you ready? Look at what he told him to do. He says, Drink no wine all our days, we, our wives, our sons, nor our daughters, nor build houses for us to dwell in, neither have we vineyards, nor field, nor seed, but we dwell in tents and have obeyed and done according to all that Jonadab our father commanded us. Now that's an interesting lifestyle they pursued. They didn't plant anything. They didn't harvest anything. They didn't have any vineyards. They lived in tents. They didn't build any houses. And they didn't drink any wine. What's all that add up to? It meant that they, were, they chose voluntary to live like the patriarchs. They said, we want to live like Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. We want to live the way they did. We want to pursue the old ways. The old ways. Now, if you're thinking, well, Mr. Benson, are you saying we should, we should all go live in a tent then? We should go camping all the time? And we're, we can't plant a garden? I'm not saying that. That's not what I'm saying. Then what are you saying? Well, let's continue a little further, just, just into the, in the Rechabites here. Let's drop down to verse 18. And here's the reward the Rechabites had. Now remember, they are living at the same time as Jeremiah, at the same time as Johanan, and all those people who asked Jeremiah for advice, they rejected and ran down to Egypt anyway. Jeremiah said to the house of the Rechabites, verse 18, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, because you've obeyed the commandment of Jonadab your father, kept his precepts, and done according to all that he commanded you, Therefore, thus saith the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Jonadab, the son of Rechab, shall not want a man to stand before me forever. That's a great promise. That's a wonderful promise. That means they're going to be preserved. I suppose there's Rechabites wandering around right now. Maybe you're a Rechabite. I don't know. So what's the point, though? It turns out the, the particulars of their lifestyle is not the point. The particulars of their lifestyle isn't the point. That's why I'm saying it, it, it's not that you and I should say, well, okay, I'm going to live in a tent. I'm not going to plant, any, plant a garden. I'm not going to have any field. I'm certainly not going to live in a house. That's, that's really bad. I'm going to live like Abraham. That's not the point. What is the point? The point is they were there. They wanted to pursue and hold on to a, 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 a piece of the old ways. The old ways. Now, it was their desire to walk in the old paths. Now, for us, the old paths have nothing to do, really, with what we've just read there. The old paths have, for us, to look to our ancestors who were pleasing God, who were walking in a covenant, who were doing it right, and say, we want to be like them. So, in Jeremiah chapter 6... Verse 16, we can close with this verse. Thus saith the Lord, stand in the ways and see and ask for the old paths. Where is the good way? And walk therein, and ye shall find rest unto your souls. So our hope is in repentance. Our hope is in remembering God's patterns of, of history. And how he may preserve a remnant if we're sensitive to him. And our hope is walking in the old paths. 
in the old ways, in righteousness and godliness and virtue and morality, in looking to our fathers and our grandfathers that, that did it right, that did it well. They didn't do it perfect, but they did well. God gave them a continent. And how did they live? Think of their ways. Think of the old paths. Think of the choices they made in their family, in their marriage, in their lifestyle, in their worship, in their doctrine, in their theology, in who they married, how they built their towns, their communities. Those are the old ways. Well, thank you, ladies and gentlemen, for your patience today. May God bless you, and I pray that your time here has been well spent with me. Thank you.